Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. This is the fifth episode in a six-part mini-series called The Physics of Everything, in which we're presenting long-form conversations from a series of events at the Academy sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation. Explorations that reflect on the current state of modern physical sciences, its greatest mysteries and future endeavors, and philosophical significance for our understanding of reality and the spiritual dimension of human existence. And today's conversation is about a set of questions that have been discussed and analyzed and turned over in just about every format you could think of. Scientific papers, sure, but also essays, novels, movies, comic books written from a countless number of points of view and with just as many agendas, from politics to sociology to religion. The questions are these. Is there extraterrestrial life? And if so, what would that mean for us here on Earth? The universe is just so big, and the more we learn about it, the bigger it seems to get. By current best estimates, the observable universe is something like 91 billion light years across and contains around 10 billion galaxies, each with around 100 billion stars in it, for a total of 1 billion trillion stars. That's a one with 21 zeros after it. The odds that only one planet orbiting only one of those stars would have evolved what we think of as life seem ridiculously low. Even the odds of life that develops to what we think of as an intelligent civilization, creatures from another star system that we could have some kind of a conversation with. When dealing with numbers that big, even events of staggering statistical unlikeliness become exceedingly probable. Let's say there's a one in a trillion chance of intelligent life developing on a particular planet. Then those odds would say that there should be a billion planets with intelligent life. Now, as we'll hear, the statistics get a lot more complicated than that. But still, the chances seem awfully good that there's something out there. And maybe it's something that's looking for us as ardently as we're looking for them. So how are we looking for extraterrestrial life? Is it enough? And what would we do if we found it? What would we say and how and why? It's a huge set of questions and the beginning of a really interesting conversation. So let's have it. Our moderator is Ira Flato, host of the popular show Science Friday, which airs on public radio stations around the country. Let's tune in as he invites the other panelists to introduce themselves. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> uh, I'm Adam Frank. I'm a professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester. Um, most of my work is computational astrophysics of things like stars and planets forming. But I also do a lot of popular you know, science work. I'm the co-founder of National Public Radio's 13.7 Cosmos and Culture blog. I also write for New York Times occasionally on subjects. And um, I'm the author of a couple of different books, one on science and religion, the other one on time and cosmology, the end of the Big Bang, so to speak. And right now I'm working on a book uh, about um, the relevance of this question and uh, of you know, other, other species or other exo-civilizations for what's happening with us with climate right now. 
My name is Jason Wright. I'm an associate professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the Center for Exoplanets and Habitable Worlds at Penn State University. And I haven't written any books, but I, uh, I study <laughs> yes. stars. You're young. Yeah. <laughs> um, I study stars and the planets that orbit them and do some planet hunting to try and find uh, planets around other stars. And I also occasionally do some work uh, on SETI, including a, um, a project that was sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation, SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Hi, I'm Steve Gardner from the University of Washington in Seattle, and uh, I'm a philosophy professor. Uh, most of my work is on uh, global problems, particularly global environmental problems. I've um, done quite a bit of work on climate change, including a book called A Perfect Moral Storm. Um, and lately I've been working a lot on uh, ethical issues surrounding grand technological interventions in the climate system in the attempt to stave off the worst um, geoengineering interventions, as they come to be called. I'm, uh, I'm Louisa Preston. I'm a UK Space Agency Research Fellow in Astrobiology and Planetary Geology. I'm based at Birkbeck University of London, so in the UK, so I may not get all the uh, in-American jokes, so you'll have to catch me up. Um, I'm also uh, a lecturer for NYU London, um, and I work in Martian environments on the Earth, looking at how extreme life might be able to survive in them and how it might be able to survive on Mars. Um, and I'm also a TED Fellow. Very nice. Well, let's begin by talking about that. I'll, I'll begin with you, Adam. Um, what are the odds, and I know you've researched this and you have papers, what are the odds that we are not alone? Uh, okay, so um, that's so that question, sort of, you know, there's lots of different ways to sort of think about it. But the, the way that people have thought about it for a long time is this thing called the Drake Equation, and the Drake Equation was uh, an attempt by Frank Drake. Actually, it was during a meeting that he was having to try and formulate what's the best way of thinking about this. This was back in 1961, um, and so the Drake Equation tells you the number of civilizations that exist right now that you could communicate with in the galaxy, and there's a bunch of different terms uh, involved. Some of them are astronomy. Some of them are about, you know. The, the probability that any given planet pr uh, produces life, uh, any of that, li the probability that that life goes on to become intelligent. Uh, and then the last factor, which is relevant for, for all of us, is the average lifetime of a civilization. So recently, um, Woody Sullivan and I, a collaborator, we uh, published a paper where we sort of took that equation and inverted it. Because the problem with the Drake equation was it was just a lot of, um, you know, it would end up being a lot of optimism versus pessimism. It was, you know, some of the, a lot of these terms we have no way of constraining. So we just recently did, we found a way of using the amazing exoplanet data that we found to actually, what we could at least figure out was what pessimism really meant. And what we could answer, that the question we could answer was, um, what, how bad do the odds have to be for life to form on a given planet in order for us to be alone? And that number turns out to be one in 10 billion trillion. So as long as the odds are better than that, as long as when you go out in the sun, the stars, and reach out and grab a planet, if the odds per planet are better than one in 10 billion trillion, then we're not the first time it's ever happened. Doesn't mean there's anybody around now, but would mean we're not the first time it's ever happened. And so to me, that is so insane. That number is so insanely small. What it means is that, you know, there may not be anybody around now, but certainly, at least to me, we're not the first time that an intelligent civilization has occurred. So let me go ask in general this. So why haven't we heard from them? I mean, that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, what? what? I'll let you take that one. <laughs> oh, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I, mean, um, I, I, 
there's there's a lot of ways to think about the problem, like you said, and a lot of ways to rearrange the terms in the Drake equation and try and, and guess what the terms might be and guess how many might be out there. Um, when I approached the problem, though, uh, I realized that that we just don't have a lot of data on the topic. We haven't been using radio telescopes to search for signals very much, and we haven't thought very hard about the ways that a potentially very advanced civilization might be detectable in space. And we haven't spent time looking for what those signatures might be and if they're in our data. And so um, I'm, 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 I try to be agnostic about how likely it is that we'll find something, but I know we have to look. And we have telescopes like the Kepler Space Telescope and other telescopes looking at the entire sky. And we should be on the lookout for anomalies. We should be thinking about what astrophysical, uh, what does nature do ordinarily? And then look for the ways that the, the stars that don't behave the way that they should, perhaps because it has an alien civilization. Could it, could it be that they have, they're so far advanced that they look at us as a, a puny little life form, like we look that. at algae or something? Yeah. Right. So, so, yes. there, so <laughs> in, that, in that Drake equation, one of the terms is how long the civilization is transmitting so that we could hear them, or, or how long the civilization survives. But one way for the civilization to end to the point that we don't notice it is if it just transcends, if it moves on to some higher plane of existence or something like that. So the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is often the search for technology that we just developed. So when we first pointed radio telescopes at the sky to listen for extraterrestrial signals, um, that was the advent of radio astronomy when we had just been able to transmit powerful radios. And then when lasers became popular, we started looking for lasers. And we, we think in terms of what we do. But we need to be prepared that perhaps they're so far ahead of us. And a, couple, um, a popular example would be, um, given that uh, an alien civilization is likely much older than humanity is, that they might be far, be evolved far beyond us, to the, in, in analogy to us, say, versus ants. Mm. And so there's a, a, I have a slide, a, a spot comic that reproduces this idea, where the, 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 the world's first ant colony to achieve sentience <laughs> calls off the search for us. <laughs> So we, we've searched dozens of these floor tiles for several common types of pheromone trails. If there were intelligent life up there, we would have seen messages by now. And of course, they're on a kitchen floor, right? <laughs> so the point is that you know we might not know it when we see it. Things we think of as normal astrophysical phenomena, for all we know, could be could be alien intelligence. So so it's hard to know what we're looking mm -hmm. for. But I know that we have to look and we have to think big and we have to make sure that that when it goes by, uh, we don't miss it because we just didn't have open enough minds. There is another way of looking at it as well which is that if you assume from the point of view of the aliens if they are looking at us now they will actually be seeing us a hundred years ago in our past so they're not seeing that we've got radio they're not seeing that we're doing the internet they're not seeing that we're actually trying to communicate or doing anything which is even more they wouldn't want or see any point in speaking to us yeah we just emerged exactly. and so most of the galaxy can't have seen us yet and we're already going quiet because we were sending out all these radio signals, but now as we go digital, actually, we're getting quieter. Mm -hmm. We're not we're not cooling out as much as we were. Stephen, could it, could it be that we just not reached the level they want to talk to? You know, I'm thinking of the science fiction movie, you know, 2001, and they have the you know they they get to the moon and there's the monolith. Now they're, we're good enough for them to discover. You know, mm -hmm. could it, could that be some? Yeah, one thing that strikes me about um, this debate, um, and I'm a real newcomer to this debate, but having a look at some of the things that have been written about it, there's a lot of emphasis on 
you know, the level of scientific, especially technological progress that we might have to meet right, to, uh, to reach a threshold where the rest of the universe would acknowledge us. And I didn't really see much evidence of raising the question of whether they might expect us to reach some ethical threshold mm -hmm. before they would permit <laughs> uh, contact. Um, and that struck me as a really interesting thing to start talking about. Um, because, and I was thinking of two rough kinds of threshold we might meet. One would be the threshold of you know, general moral development um, at the social level in particular. You know, maybe our moral concepts and theories and our general institutions aren't good enough yet. But the other could be that they're fine, but we're just not living up to those ideals yet mm. in a way mm. that would make extraterrestrial civilizations excited about interacting mm. with us. I mean, you might imagine from the, uh, from the universe, from the point of view of the rest of intelligent life in the universe, it could be that they're a bit worried about making first contact because it might be like giving an Uzi to a two-year-old. Mm. Right. Um, and there are parallels for thinking a little like this, not on quite the same scale, um, in mainstream political philosophy when we think about interacting with different cultures, right? We often think in terms of what are the minimal requirements to be counted as a decent um, country or a decent civilization um, to interact with. And before you get to that point, you're usually much more standoffish. How do we know that they haven't gone down the road of you know self-destruction? You know, is that a possibility? That well, that's actually I think the most important factor when you look at the Drake equation. Um, that final factor, you know, which is the average lifetime of intelligent species. If that you know, it does that number doesn't have to be. You know, if it's 10,000 years, which for us, if we actually imagine human civilization starting now going on for 10,000 years, I mean, it's really, you know, you have to really exercise your imagination to think about that many centuries of progress and development. But if that was the average lifetime, then the galaxy's pretty sterile. Even, you know, you got to be really optimistic about how often uh, civilizations start uh, with a ten, and if they have a 10,000 year lifetime. For, for, there, for there to be uh, many around. So if that number, if the average lifetime is on the order of 10,000, 100,000, a million years, you still end up with a pretty sterile uh, um, hmm. galaxy. That's, I, I, that's true, but I think it's hard to imagine how the number could be so short. And here's why. If life is common in the universe, then there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of independent, separate species. And in order for it to be that short, there has to be some universal sociological law that says that every single one of those totally independent, separately evolved species will inevitably end itself permanently. I mean, here on Earth, we've had plenty of cultural collapses. We see civilizations collapse all the time, but we keep going. It doesn't permanently ever stop us from advancing. Furthermore, once you get more than a few thousand years in, like we have, you have the possibility of something like a settlement. 
So if we have a permanent settlement on Mars, that right. acts as a lifeboat. Even if we completely had you know, global thermonuclear war and sterilized our planet, well, now we've got a lifeboat on Mars. And once we have one on Mars and the moon and maybe a nearby star, once you have those lifeboats, you have to get rid of all of them. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I think a species basically becomes immortal. Because once you have that many lifeboats, you don't expect them all to go out at once and to do so permanently. So I'm skeptical of resolutions to the Fermi paradox that say things like, well, maybe all of them do X. I call it sort of the monocultural fallacy, that there's this one culture and they will always do the same thing every time forever. And um, I think it's possible that as soon as you discover stuff, maybe it's bad, but it, it, it's really hard for me to imagine that mm. it's inevitable that every species would destroy itself forever. Surely, though, you can't put a number to it until you either find another civilization and ask how long they've been around, or mm -hmm. you can put a number to it as we're on the way out. That's the only way you... You can actually put look. a number to it. We have yeah. to look. Well, if they're on the way out and they're looking for lifeboats, you know, science fiction is full of people looking for Earth as a lifeboat. I mean, aliens. <laughs> mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they be out looking for us, you know? I mean, is that so much of a, science, a leap to science fiction? That, <coughs> no, you know? we've got a great planet. Why wouldn't you, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, why, why wouldn't you want to uh, use it? I mean, you'd much choose Earth over any of the other places in the solar system. So. So if you, you uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that's actually the origin of the so-called Fermi paradox. The, the original question that Enrico Fermi was asking was given that Earth's been around for 4 billion years and the galaxy's been around for 10 billion years or something, um, they should have found us by now. And they're obviously not here. And so where is everybody? And that was exactly it. But I think, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as you. I certainly, like, I think that... Um, uh, climate change can be, you know, a filter. I don't know, but I'm not a big fan of great filters that everybody gets wiped mm -hmm. out. But I think, you know, I think one can make an argument, which I've been trying to do, that um, climate change, any species that reach, and especially, you know, you reach climate change when you're vulnerable, right? You're going to ramp up a young civilization that's ramping up and building a global civilization has to harvest so much energy to maintain the civilization that there's just, you can predict in some sense that there's got to be feedback. There's only certainly, there's only so many kinds of energy around you can use, right? If you're a young civilization. Uh, uh, you know, combustion, atomic, maybe if there are piles, you know, atomic piles lying around. So either way, you're using enough energy that I think, you know, you feed back on the planet. And um, it may be a while, like with Mars. Like, it would, if we colonized, if we colonized Mars, it might be a long time before that was a self-sustaining colony. So, um, and then the interesting thing about this is if you get now 100,000 years out, let's say you make it for 100,000, who knows what the next level of you know, of screw-up, <laughs> of cosmic screw-up wow. is available. No. If we colonize Mars, Stephen, who goes, gets chosen? And that's also, you know, Rod Serling used to write about this. Everybody would write about this. Yeah. Yeah. Who gets chosen to go on that colony, to be part of that lifeboat? And how do you choose that? How do you decide ethically, morally, mm -hmm. to do that? Do people think about that? Do they think about this idea? Mm -hmm. Or is this too far-fetched? I don't think it's too far-fetched. Ethicists are willing to think about just about anything. <laughs> so that certainly can't be the, the, the threshold. Um, I think this is one of those areas where, I mean, to be honest, I don't find much evidence that ethicists or anyone else has spent a lot of time thinking about encountering um, alien life, whether it's intelligent life or otherwise. And the sort of attention that gets paid to the question in the community that is concerned about it, about it is most of the time attention to what to do in first contact kind mm. of situations. And not really attention about... Well, let's what? go there. 
I mean, mm. let's talk about that because, you know, what, what do we do? First of all, how do we know that there's a first contact? I mean, uh, let me start with that A and start with that because there is, there is a, a planet, there's an exoplanet that has some weird stuff floating around it, right? You want, you want oh, yeah. to talk about it? Or you well, want to talk about it? Hey? So, you mean Adam? You want to start? Actually, I think you know more about Tabby, about Tabby Star. Star. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Yeah. So, um, uh, so when I was talking about looking for anomalies, uh, there was a prediction that the Kepler spacecraft, which studies stars' brightnesses very carefully, and it looks for planets that pass in front of the stars. There was a prediction by um, an astronomer named Luke Arnold before it flew, saying, "Well, it's possible there are advanced civilizations out there, and they might build enormous structures in space." This is an old idea, um, and if that's if those are out there, then Kepler will see them pass in front of the stars, and you know we should be on the lookout for that. Um, and astronomers were not out on the lookout for that. They were looking for planets, not giant structures passing in front of stars. Um, but then some citizen scientists uh, at the Planet Hunters website were poring over the Kepler data by eye instead of by computer algorithm, and found a star with really big things passing in front of it that weren't planets, weren't stars, weren't circular, and we still have no idea what it is Kepler saw. Uh, and so the, the astronomer that did all of the legwork to show that it was a real anomaly and not some spacecraft glitch or just some young star, because young stars can do that kind of thing, uh, is uh, Dr. Tabitha Boyajin at Yale. And uh, there's been some uh, a lot of media attention to the star, because mm -hmm. I pointed out that Garnold had said we might see something like that, and so we can't say it didn't find any, because here's a star that's inexplicable. So it, maybe that's it. Maybe those are the alien megastructures. And, um, and so uh, it has some long catalog name that I can never remember. And so I called it Tabby Star in front of a reporter once, and now, now on Wikipedia it's Tabby Star. <laughs> um, so that's what I meant by looking for these anomalies uh, and being ready for them. Uh, that doesn't mean I think we found aliens, but I, I, we, well, should, but they, we should but check. The, but at this point, the, the alien probability is as good as any other probability. I don't know how to assign that probability, mm -hmm. but I will say that we don't have any good ideas for what's going on there, and so That's I don't know. Maybe it. one bad idea is as bad as any other. Well, I think you know the, the idea of like uh, you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary yeah. proof, and so since Absolutely. we know there's we know there's lots of kinds of things that can be around stars, you got to exhaust those down until your you know the, your fingers have gone bloody before you would go for the alien. Lisa, we, 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 do we have an idea of what life form, what they would look like? Would they be carbon-based like we are? Or oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> that's, that's up there with the question of what is life, isn't it? Um, well, we make the assumption that alien life will be carbon-based, um, mainly because we are, um, and we don't have any other examples to really help us in our search. I mean, our planet's mostly silicon, but life still shows carbon, mm. so there's got to be many, many good reasons for why that happened. So we assume they'd be carbon-based. If we want them to be intelligent, that means they've got to be multicellular like we are, which means they'll probably breathe oxygen because we need oxygen strength to power our systems. Probably liquid water-based because, again, we don't really have any other examples to go by. So they might look quite like us. And they would have to have some way of doing fine motor movements to yes. invent and create things? Maybe? Yeah, not, I mean, you're not so convinced of this? They'll definitely have um, something like a fingers, but we don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have to have ten. They, they, they could get by yeah. with three on each hand. You know, They just need it for grasping. Or tentacles. Um, or, or tentacles. They'll need some kind of limb uh, to be able to move around, to escape predators, to hunt, to 
do anything like that. So you're thinking of space snakes now. <laughs> no limbs <laughs> for space snakes. Um, they'll have eyes, almost certainly, which would be good. Because uh, the eye on Earth has evolved 50 to 100 times completely independently, so we think, and it makes sense. It makes sense to have eyes. You do need to see where you're going and have some kind of sensory perception. So they could look absolutely alien, or they could look quite a bit like us. There's just no could, way to know. Could they look at colors in different spectrum than we see? Yep, they could do. Um, we did have a, a number of ideas about would they be the typical grey-green alien. Um, yes, potentially, if they have a sun-like star like ours and they need to blend in with their environments or they have chlorophyll in their skin just like plants do. Um, but I think whatever colour they might be or whatever they might look like will depend on how we view them in relation to their star as well as our perception as well as what they look like on their planets as well. And they would be living on these exoplanets. Describe for people who don't know what an exoplanet is. Oh, what an exo I'm going to turn to the physicist. <laughs> <laughs> an exoplanet is a planet that orbits a star other than the sun. So it's a planet. But before we knew about them around other stars, we didn't have a separate name for them. And there are um, all, there are so many of we, them. The Kepler spacecraft has found thousands of them. Yeah. Every star in the sky, pretty much every star you see in the sky has at least yeah. one planet going around it. And the thing too important that, you know, that I keep emphasizing that's on that piece I did yesterday um, was that, you know, this is a revolution. This is, you know, a revolution in human understanding that is potentially greater than anything else we've understood. If we haven't absorbed it yet, right? You can go back and look at the Greeks and read them asking, gee, do other stars have planets like mm. our, even though you know, the Greeks didn't really know what planets were. And then you, know, you can look at the Arabic astronomers in 800 AD, and you can see them go, hey, are there planets? Are there any planets around other stars? You know, um, Before they were burned for heresy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. You know, people were burned for, for, for you know, thinking they <laughs> were in the Renaissance. That's the point I'm going to ask. Is that how is it going to be accepted if you really do? find it, you know, what you want, Stephen, yeah. you want to talk about Well, it? actually, I wanted to raise, this This connects to something I wanted to raise for Adam, because he said, well, if it's an extraordinary thing, you need extraordinary evidence, so we're going to be very careful about Tabby's star and things like this. Um, and I found myself wondering what that claim really means, because according to your calculations, it wouldn't be that surprising, <laughs> right? Indeed, you know, there was a prediction, right? So. So there's not this, it's not extraordinary in the sense of statistically, you know, incredibly unlikely according to our best calculations as done by Adam, right? So there's a question in my mind as to what extraordinary actually means there. You have to ask Carl Sagan. He yeah, and, and, why we would, and why we would insist that certain kinds of theoretical claims, certain kinds of attributions would be so something as to demand mm. much higher yeah. levels of it, proof. Because I think there's something going on there. Point. There's a background yeah. assumption about yeah. what it yeah. means. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a scientific I, assumption. So I think the reason is that we don't have a model for alien intelligence. And so without a model, we aren't, we don't, we aren't testing a model. And that doesn't feel like science. Because, I mean, Arthur Clarke wrote his, you know, his laws and one of his famous third law, he says any sufficiently advanced civilization or technology is indistinguishable from magic. And the point is that if they're far, far beyond us, 
that they will be able to do things that to us look like they violate the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. So if we're not allowed to assume that we know the laws of physics, because they might be apparently violating them with their technology, uh, then we're not, it doesn't feel like we're doing science. And so we say, oh, I think I found aliens. Well, it can explain any anomaly. And so that's mm -hmm. why I think the extraordinary evidence needs to be there. But, but if you're finding stuff, and I mean, you have, there's a whole program SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial mm -hmm. Intelligence, which takes a priori that we believe they're out there mm -hmm. wouldn't be searching That's right. Yeah. Right? Well, right. I wouldn't say, I mean, there's, it's, it's quite possible that it's not. I mean, it could be a negative, you know, if you search for 200, 300 years and do, you know, really exhaustive, because the thing right now is we haven't really done exhaustive searches. We've hardly even begun to look. So the idea of saying, like, to me right now, Fermi's paradox is not even a paradox. We've hardly even begun to look. But it would be, you know, if you looked for, if you really looked for a long time and you didn't find anything. I mean, so I don't think it's necessarily the assumption is they're there. It's just that it's possible we should look. You know, the yeah. negative could turn out to be true too. Um, I think we believe that they're there. Because if we didn't, A, we would have given up a long time ago, but also every rover we sent, every orbiter, every satellite, they've got a version of the gold disk, they've got a message, they've got information about us. I mean, why would we waste hard drive space and <laughs> space on our satellites telling someone who we are, where we are, and how to find us. Because we're lonely. Didn't. I think it's hope, I mean, <laughs> more than anything. No, I really do. I really think this, is a, this is a cosmic hope that we have. I mean, yeah, I think they're there yeah. they, on some long... Um, but they would be. They would have been listening to our signals from I Love Lucy, right? Yeah. Carl Sagan used to talk about that a lot. Hitler. Yeah, Hitler, right? Hitler's the first oh thing God. they get. They get the, the, one, yeah. the Olympics, yeah, yeah, the 36 sort of Olympics. Which is maybe why they've not contacted us. Yeah. Speaking of ethical... <laughs> yeah. that, that may be. Um, so they, you know, but but relatively speaking, we are we we are searching through the solar system for all kinds of life, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How much in comparison are we spending on searching for extra SETI, you know, searching for intelligent life as compared? Zero. Virtually. Well, I mean, there have been there's private philanthropy. So recently, the Breakthrough Initiatives uh, announced that it was going to spend ninety million dollars on as a down payment on a ten year effort. Uh, to do radio communication SETI, to use the world's largest telescopes to look for alien signals. Um, but uh, to date, all of those efforts, like you think about in the movie Contact or something, um, since the 80s have been uh, privately funded. The US government just is not interested in that particular aspect of astrobiology. So federally, zero. I mean, federally, it's been a lot of time. Just as end. Yeah, get worse because the NSF is contemplating shutting down Arecibo. Yeah. Yes, uh, the world's biggest radio telescope. Could you? I mean, and they, they, what was it? Uh, Nine million dollars a year it takes. To I think that's about pocket it, yeah. change for. Yeah, you know. Yeah, compared to the other things we spend money on. Paper code. Could you take that? Could could a private person come along and say, "I want to dedicate that yeah. to the city"? Sure. It'd be really good if they did actually, because there's a lot of private companies jumping on, jumping on board the whole "let's send humans to Mars" thing. And I mean, obviously, I'm completely for that. But the amount of money they're putting mm. towards that, which is so far in the future, they could just siphon off a couple of million to keep SETI going. I don't know why they wouldn't. We should ask them. Kickstarter. <laughs> Kickstarter. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. We are doing Kickstarter for Tabby Star. There's only a couple are, of days left. Yeah, what is that? It's crap with the Kickstarter in. So, um, so Kickstarter is a website to crowdsource funding for things. And so uh, Tabby Boyajian uh, is leading a team to try and study this star. And uh, it's very hard to get 
funding for any kind of science these days. It's so competitive. And so uh, she's raising money to purchase time on a private telescope network to try and catch the star in the act. And if we can catch it getting dim again, then we have all sorts of things we can do to figure out what's passing in front of the star. And the point of the Kickstarter isn't actually to do SETI. It's, it's, it's on the presumption that we're going to find gas or dust or something really astrophysically interesting. Um, but whatever it is, we'll probably figure it out if we can catch it again. You know, one of the one of the reasons why you know extraordinary Carl Sagan said that is because there are so many people who believe in little green men and things like that over the years that, that he said you got to give me some real evidence. But what you're saying is that we we shouldn't be taking this lightly now. I mean that they, there's uh, right. Uh, yeah. No. What saying? I'd say I think what, what's happened, and that's why I think you know physicists and astronomers have sort of held this whole problem at bay for a long time. So we were talking earlier, um, the guy I wrote this paper with recently, Woody Sullivan, he was um, uh, at the University of Washington while I was there, and this is in the mid-80s, and he was doing SETI. And everybody was kind of like, he, 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 oh, he's doing, you know, it was, it was sort of like, this is a joke, you're doing SETI. Um, but then along came astrobiology. We started exploring the solar system, and we realized, like, wow, we can really start asking questions about life, not necessarily intelligent life, and suddenly money was poured into it, and we were discovering amazing things with the rovers on Mars, and, uh, and then along Along came the discovery of exoplanets, and we found we could actually, you know, begin to look at the atmospheres of these planets that are so far away. Um, and I think what's really changed now is that um, it's time to stop snickering about aliens. That this should we instead of seeing it as being something a little wacky, and of course there has been so much wackiness about yeah. it. There's, you know, if, uh, you know, you publish an article about uh, about SETI, and suddenly you're going to get 10,000 people. I, I got it from this the article I had in the New York Times Sunday. Um, you know, my email box is full of people who want me to look at the the YouTube video of the aliens they saw, you know? So it's every, you know, you're a little bit like, oh, God, I don't want to go there. Um, but I think with what's happening with the exoplanet characterization, that's mm -hmm. the next, thir within 30 years, we may have data that tells us that there are biospheres on these. I mean, we're heading in that direction. It may be hard, but that's where we're headed. Two, three decades. So it's time to sort of so also, I think the attitudes are, are changing now. It's, we're going to be looking for biospheres. Yeah, we may find things. Well, there. how do you know what to listen for? from them. I mean, if they're so far advanced, couldn't they be sending us stuff that we have no capacity yeah. to detect? So one of the assumptions that often goes into communication steady work is that they would be deliberately signaling us. And so it's, you know, if they deliberately send a narrowband radio transmission, which is very cheap, it's very straightforward to do, um, that would be unambiguous. That would be extraordinary evidence, because there's no natural process that can do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if they're not doing that, then they'd be there and we'd miss them. Which is, the SETI I do is actually different, looking for other signatures, things that might be not intentional, but passive so, so evidence. Like, what? like giant, look, if they have giant structures, they'll just drift in front of the star without them oh, doing anything, mm -hmm. so that you would find them that way, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and how do we decide if we want to send something out besides I don't Decide? Lucy. We already decided. We do it all the time. Well, what is, what is the message we're sending to this? I love Lucy. <laughs> I mean, we're not tasty. No. Who decides? I mean, I mean, so that's, that's the, it's a, yeah. such a passive search. Well, what what's really interesting, actually, is I was, um, there's a BBC production company at the moment who are making a documentary about one of these factual documentary dramas where you have received a signal or you, you have found something and there's a lone astronomer who's done it. What is the chain of command? What is the order? Who does he tell? Where does it go? And there's an entire thing where basically it would take two weeks to follow the full chain of command of who tells who's boss and who goes to where. And eventually the president finds out. 
but then there's no agreement in any country or between any country as to who would announce it, how would you announce it. Um, but the, the irony is, is that it's actually going to end up saying that the chances are the person who first gets an alien signal will be a member of the public or a citizen astronomer who's just combing through SETI at home data, right. in mm -hmm. which case they'll tweet it or they'll just you know, say, <laughs> I found it. I found aliens. Um, yeah. and then, Here's my lunch. And then they were talking about, well, who replies, who says what. No one knows. There has not been anything written down. No one's got any actual plans as to what happened. I think NASA have got some ideas. There's but again, that's an American-centric response, no. not a global response. If you ask the Dan Wertheimer who did SETI at home, and I, I hope I'm quoting him correctly, that he says the protocol is, once we've confirmed it, we tell the world. That's the protocol. <laughs> if you're in America. But the no, rest of the world has it. no idea what they're doing. So if, but I mean, if I mean, Earth's pointing in the wrong direction... But what if it's American who discovers it? Well, that's the thing. If, if, if for example, the Brits discovered it, um, by the time we've gone through the protocol we haven't quite written yet, the signal will have gone around to Australia, and then Australia will think they've got the signal first, and then it will come around to America, and then they'll think they've got the signal first. And we need, we need a global understanding, I think, about how we deal with this. Yeah, I was... This connects with something I was trying to say earlier when we were on the, you know, get out your loose change and put it in the bucket to try and get some of this um, sort out. Sorry, the technological version kicks <laughs> So I was thinking that, you know, in the stuff that I've written about climate change and geoengineering, one thing I've emphasized is that we seem to face a massive institutional gap around dealing with serious intergenerational issues. And it's one of the main things that has struck me about this issue as well. Presumably, um, first contact with an intelligent alien species would be one of the most significant um, events in the history of humanity. Mm. Yet we were being told no one's really thought through <laughs> how to handle that first contact right, at an institutional mm. level, what that would look like. Um, and I think from the, the perspective, if you like, of intergenerational ethics or even just intergenerational relations, that's very, very surprising. Right? You think that any society that was doing a decent job of um, taking the, the plight of humanity across many generations seriously would put a bit of energy into think, thinking mm -hmm. about these detection issues and especially, and not just first contact, what to do with the signal, but what to do the day after, well, the yeah. week after, and so on. You know, couldn't that, be, couldn't that be what you, part of what you said before about the criteria mm -hmm. for making contact with us, that we would have to be peaceful or not distracted enough that we would sit down by other world politics, that we would sit down and think about what we have to do to answer them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's what's interesting about the intergenerational part, because, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it would be awesome if we found that signal, but we also have to remember that unless it's coming from nearby, you know, cosmically nearby, we might find a signal from a star that's a thousand light years away, which is yeah. still pretty nearby, which means that it took a thousand years to get to us, and then we're going to be like, yo, and that message <laughs> is going to take a thousand years. So, like, there's a weird part of this is that we yeah. could get, you know, we could get something that was absolutely from intelligence, but it might not have a whole lot of information in it, in which case we're like, yeah. whoa, and then it's like, okay, 
Mm. So yeah. there's a certain part of, of this whole discussion that if they don't land on the White House lawn, what does it look like? What does yeah. it look like if we... Absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, or Buckingham Palace. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Not everything happens in America. <laughs> You're getting arrested no matter where they I, land. So. <laughs> Parking ticket. It's true. The, the, it will be an amazing day when we have unambiguous evidence of intelligent life in the universe. Um, but I don't think it'll be culture changing for that reason, unless yeah. they land. It'll yeah. be a piece of information we have. Mm. But frankly, a lot of people think we've already made contact, right? I mean, yeah. a lot of people think okay. that there's yeah. a good chance that there's UFOs that, from aliens. You know, they give 30% mm. chance or something, and this hasn't blown their mind. It's just the way it is. Well, they, they, so I don't think it'll, like, rock society and civilization crumbles. It'll just be something else we know, because so we can't have a conversation. It's so interesting. I was on a science panel this weekend, and we got asked, you know, what would be the reaction of the world, what would happen globally if we found life. It wasn't necessarily intelligent life, they just said if we found life. Um, and my answer was it would depend what, on the life. If it was an alien waving hello and saying everything, I mean, you could probably answer better on this, global everything, there'd probably be some mass suicides, there'll be some celebrations, there'll be signs, there'll be absolutely everything. And then I said, but the chances are the first life we find will be a lipid, <laughs> on Mars or a bit of a protein on Mars so all the scientists will be out at the bar celebrating and the rest of the world will think alright what up good yeah. for you um, come back just when it's got a face kind of thing so well, we've already contaminated Mars haven't we with oh, yeah. life from Earth I know. Yeah, hopefully it didn't, didn't take. It's a real pity. Tell, tell them about that, how we've contaminated. How, how have we done that? Well, unfortunately, we've contaminated by crashing. Um, and yes, Beagle was ours. And yes, we did crash. Um, <laughs> but there's that, that famous image when Curiosity first landed. Um, you can see all these little pebbles of rock, and there's this sort of white, wiggly thing. And everyone thought, oh my goodness, there's an organism. We've done it, we've done it. And then they analyzed it, and it was a piece of plastic that had fallen off the rover or one of some of the landing stages. and you just thought, great. So it's not, photograph it's not, the pollution. It's not sterile. No, so you can't do completely sterile. So it's you can't not sterile. There's we levels of sterility, but you can't do yeah. to Mars. Right. And if, you know, stuff could make yeah. it. You know, microbes gen, are very hard. How do we know that, that if we find it, it's not from Earth? We but can tell. The general we idea is if you haven't stuck an extremophile organism on them, so although right. we, you know, we, we build them sterile, nothing is ever sterile, but the organisms that we hope, if they do attach themselves to a rover and go to Mars, won't be able to handle the environment on Mars and they'll get snuffed out straight away. But obviously, we've all seen science fiction films. There'll I'm, be one. But we've I'm afraid also, it's We've also discovered it's, back, it's, forms of life it, here that it, are almost it, indestructible. It, right? Exactly. These extremophiles can live a long time. I mean, we have these organisms on Earth that can survive in space for yeah. some period of time. Um, but it's worse than the fact that we've contaminated Mars. I mean, we, know what Mars, we knew what Mars rocks were like before we studied them because yeah. they land in Antarctica. Mars rocks yeah. are here on Earth. Yeah. And so, conversely, there are Earth rocks that have been knocked up by meteorite impacts that have gone around the sun for a long time and landed on Mars. Yeah, we've got meteorites on Mars. We've seen photos of them. We know there are meteorites yeah. on Mars. There are almost certainly Earth rocks on Mars. And in fact, a, a student at Penn State, Rachel Worth, did a calculation and showed that there are probably at least a few Earth rocks on Europa. And so Earth rocks go everywhere. And if they carry extremophiles, it's possible we will discover in Europa mm. Earth life. It's well, not, yeah. I, that's, a, that, that's a long way and a lot of time for an organism to is. survive. A water sure. bear could do it. 
Well, of course, Mars was. I mean, the question is when. I mean, what? Who, who got started when? Because Mars was a blue world, right? Most, you know, we have now overwhelming evidence that there was water rushing on Mars for maybe about a half billion years. I mean, yeah. it's unclear exactly, you know, how long what the state was, but there clearly was water on Mars. So, and half billion years is a long time. So, you know, did life start on Mars and then get blown here? Did life start here and then get blown onto Mars and maybe thrive for a while? So, say you might have extremophiles now still there, yeah. but they came from, you know, from three and a half billion years ago. What's the closest exoplanet we've discovered? One. Well, four light years. Oh, no, much, much closer. Much closer. Uh, no. Well, Alpha Centauri has a. Oh, Alpha Centauri BB has a signal that may be mm. a planet. Yeah. Almost certainly would Which not is four have light life, years. though. And how, how long? But the closest planet yeah. that's habitable is yeah. almost certainly 10 light years or less. Yeah. So you could have a conversation in a lifetime. Yes, yes. If, you, if they were intelligent. If it's right. only ten, 10 light years, means it takes 10 years to go back and forth. So well, you could have. Can. Yeah, if they <laughs> were. You've got to take another 10 years. Yeah. Right. But you could have a conversation. Be if slow, they had, but yeah. If the nearest, yeah. But you know, I think with this point, I think there's another way in which to look at this, which is very important to me. Um, which is, you know, one of the reasons when I did this study and we got that, that pessimism line, I call it, you know, the, uh, the, the showing that, you know, the actual odds of getting, you know, the, 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 the odds that we're alone are so low that there's probably been, you know, this has happened before. Even if there's nothing around now, it has happened before. Is that, I think the, the real, uh, change, the mental change, is to understand that what, I mean, for me at least, what we're going through now with climate change, has that has probably happened before, which really sort of, you know, one of the most difficult parts about this emergent civilization we're trying to build that has institutions that can deal with 100 year, 200 year, 500 years, is I think one of our problems is we don't really understand what we are, right? You know, we are the aliens, right? We are a civilization, mm -hmm. an expression of the planet, to use Kim Stanley Robinson's, you know. We're just an expression of the biosphere. Yeah. And this has probably happened on lots of planets, you know. And they all may be gone now, but they've all had histories, right? They've all had mm -hmm. trajectories. And in principle, you know, even theoretically, you could ask, what are those trajectories like? Which are the ones that, you know, uh, the civilizations that were born got to the point of, of triggering climate change? And then figured out how to make it past that, yeah. and which are the ones that dove back down and collapsed. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if it's happened enough times, all you need is about a thousand of these to happen over yeah. the entire history of the universe, and there's averages. Now suddenly these trajectories have properties. So I think the most important thing for us to understand is that we're already there in some sense, right? And we're, you know, that, that understanding of what we are and that what we're facing with climate change is this extraordinary event that pushes, that could or should, and if it doesn't, then we're just one of the cosmic losers, but, you know, push us over to make us understand about what we truly are in the universe. Stephen, is there you're a climate change expert? Right? You study the consequences of it. Is there a lesson here that we can take about finding? Well, Adam and I are singing from the same hymn sheet, I, I think, here. <laughs> um, in my book, I suggest there are certain kinds of, of tests that evolving species would face, and that climate change poses such a test is a generally global, strongly intergenerational kind of problem. So you need a level of sophistication that's not just scientific, but also institutional and ethical to survive it. I suspect we'll try, if we manage to do a lot better than we're currently doing with climate change and survive that test, or that instance of the test, I suspect we'll increasingly confront other instances of these major global intergenerational phenomena um, just because we're able 
to influence things on such a massive global intergenerational scale now. And, and, and you would suspect that any other civilization has the same tests they've gone through, mm -hmm. the same... I would, for the same tests. reason. I mean, Adam was brilliantly concrete about it and thinking just from the energy dimension that there will be yeah. these kinds of, of tests at a certain stage in the evolution of a species, intelligent species or civilization on a planet. And that's why I think you can see what we're going through now is we're sort of the, at the end of our, it's our beginning of our maturity. It's the end of our cosmic teenagehood, right? Like, you know, you give, with teenagers, you get, you know, you get to a certain point, you get the car, you get the keys to the car, right? And you either figure out how not to be an idiot with that or, you know, as horrible as it is, some, some don't make it, right? Or, so, you know, we, that's how I really think we are. We're, this is the end, this is our childhood end. It's the beginning of our maturity. Um, uh, somebody has called climate change our final exam right before we're able to go on and if we make it we get to go on and others you know probably if it's happened more than a thousand times you can say perhaps others have made it and the, the average lifetime is more than 200 years you can look at it quite optimistically and say that we're going to learn from climate change because if you want to go and colonize Mars for example and potentially even terraform Mars the best way to do it is to mess it up the way that we've messed up Earth and that will actually we're terraforming Earth yeah, yeah and, you know, to make Mars Earth like we we actually need to cause climate change on it, and exactly in the way that we've is, damaged our Is it our possible to, to cause terraforming, meaningful terraforming? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us how sure. you do that. The best work I saw was um, the, the Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson, and he works out some detail. He crash asteroids and comets into it, and it gives you a lot of water and carbon dioxide, and eventually you melt the ice caps, and you get all that stuff in the atmosphere, and mm -hmm. you can make it, yeah. Genetically engineer organisms that can fix nitrogen or mm -hmm. do it, you know, do the kind of things yeah. you need to do in order to... And what's the time frame? Something like Tens that. of thousands thousand. of years. If you really you want to do it, most realistically, it would be a thousand years. Through now. Yeah, no, a thousand yeah. years or so yeah. to make Mars habitable, the so idea no is time you, soon. You'd paraterraform it, so you'd move there and you'd live in habitats that were mini-Earths so that you could live there whilst you were pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, waiting for the atmosphere to thicken, waiting for the pressure to increase so that liquid water could be stable. And once that happens, then you can start to plant some plants and put in some algae and wait another couple of thousand years till they make enough oxygen to go into the atmosphere, which you can breathe and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. What did you think of the movie The Martian or the book? The book was better than the movie. It was actually, yeah. What did you think about that? Is, is that a possibility of, of setting up a colony on Mars like that? Yeah. Did they get, did they get it right? I, I know the they author, did, yeah. he did a lot of homework on it. He did a lot of homework He did do a lot of homework. Great, yeah, I, I, I read it when it was in a, a PDF yeah. when one of the publishers in the UK was trying to decide whether they were going to take it. And so she emailed it to me and said, could you read this and tell me if you think the science is, you know, are we going to get in real trouble if we publish it? And uh, I wrote back and said, it's pretty good. Um, I'm going to go and see if I can grow some potatoes in my Mars analog soil. <laughs> and I did. And I, I've actually started doing all this Mars gardening stuff now because of it. Because I just thought, that's a good point. Can, would potatoes grow? And actually, yeah, it's a really, really good film, actually. It's, um, he really did his homework. We, we talked about it on Science Friday. And we got a, a listener who said, you know what the problem with the, with the potatoes is? I said, why? I said, they don't make potatoes with eyes on them anymore. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> you know, they've engineered no. the potatoes yeah, yeah, to have eyes <laughs> to grow new potatoes. They probably, yeah. 
Cut them up with a little piece. I think a better series along this line, which is just like one of my favorite science fiction stories right now, is the Expanse series. I don't know how many people have seen the Expanse on TV. This is a sci-fi channel. But the books, there's a set of yeah. books, um, uh, also called the, the series is called the Expanse. But I, what I love about these books is because I think that interstellar travel is a long, long, long way off. And the idea of interstellar civilization, given the travel times, I also, I'm just, so uh, to me, the solar system is our home for the next few thousand years. And what this book takes seriously, and what Kim Stanley Robinson started this, of you know what does it actually look like to try and you know make your solar system habitable have every nook and cranny that you can you know you can possibly use for human development uh, and in that book, unlike Kim Stanley Robinson, where terraforming happens and they, you know, there's 500 years or not even, you know, all Mars becomes this like super organized society because their whole plan is, yeah, it's going to take us a thousand years to terraform this world, but we're going to do it, and that becomes sort of a uh, characteristic of their of the national personality in some sense. Mm. The ethics of whether we should do it yeah, or we should be allowed one. to do it is uh, is another one. What do you mean? Well, we don't own Mars. No one does. Um, is, if there is life on Mars, are we going to be treading on their toes if they have them? Even if it's microbial, right? Exactly. And yeah. we're never going to be able to explore the entire surface. Um, so we, we don't know. We'll be making a, a judgment call. And do we have the right to do that? And who owns Mars? Is it the first country that lands there? Is yeah. it the first government that gets there? Is it Elon Musk if he gets there first? <laughs> you know, you just... I'm betting on Elon. <laughs> not not Baz from Mars One. <laughs> no Elon. It'll be Elon. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really it's really there's a you know, what's interesting now also is how the space program has changed now because of what they call new space that there's all these private companies really mm -hmm. thinking very seriously about uh, space, including all these um, the planetary resources. You should go to planetary resources website. It's awesome just because you know they want to do asteroid mining and they've got all this great stuff on there. And there's the question of like yeah who does own this stuff? And I think recently Congress just or the Obama administration signed something that allowed, said, look, if you go grab an asteroid, you get, you know, you get whatever. But yeah. space law is kind of a mess for this. We don't really know yeah. what to well, do about this. That's a what brand is, new subject, actually, yeah. space law. Well, it should. I mean, this precedent, no one really owns Antarctica either. Right, yeah, that's an yep. interesting question. So it's also interesting, we don't, we don't really settle Antarctica very much. We have a few scientific outposts, but it's not a place that's got thriving settlements, and it's much more hospitable than yeah. any place off the planet. Yeah. I've been, and so, I've been there, so I can... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's interesting that, you know, we fully expect that we'll have these giant Martian colonies in a few hundred years or less, but, you know, I don't hear people talking about the metropolis at the South Pole or something. Mm. And, you know, why That's is that? That's a good that? point. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Well. Uh, very flat, very high. One of the things I thought that was interesting about Kim Stanley Robinson's books, which I highly recommend all of his books really to you, but about the Red Mars, Blue Mars, uh, the reason, one of the reasons people went out there was to, was the freedom, right? Was the idea that this was going to be the frontier, and if you actually can form, you know, you can build a, you know, if you can tent a crater, a crater, right, and get 500 square miles of and pressurize it of living space, mm -hmm. then you know, if you're Mormons, you can have that be a, you know, purely Mormon. You're going to be so far away from Earth that you're going to be able to do whatever kind of social experiments you want, and that may be what drives people out there. The, the, the wild west all over. Right, right, exactly, right. Um, yeah. hey, hey, in a few minutes we have before we go to the go to the phones. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you uh, my program. I always give everybody a blank check question when we talk about money because it's all about the money <laughs> in the long run. Mm. Where, if you had, if you had, not I won't say a limitless, but a reasonable amount of money to spend on extraterrestrial intelligence life or life, where would you spend it? Let me start with you. What what do we need to build to, to search for it or to discover it? Or what, would, what kind of tools do you think 
we need? What, anybody, throw it open to anybody. What, 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 where would you spend? You say you don't have you any You mean money? for intelligent life or yeah. for well, life let's say, in general? Let's say intelligent life, because that's what we're talking about. Well, I mean, I guess since I since I do this, I've I've sort of already put my time. You know, I've already answered this question. Fill out um, your spreadsheet now. And things <laughs> you'd like I guess my what I found is that because it's not funded by the government, because it's mostly philanthropic donations, uh, it there just hasn't been a lot of the. Um, basic work that you expect in a well-developed discipline. And so there's a lot of sort of easy questions to answer. Mm. Uh, like Adam and I are collaborating on a project just to figure out how long would it take to fill the galaxy. And that question is sort of you know embarrassingly ill-solved. And we, we could do it easily, we just need some time. And so um, right now, I would just put it into to turning SETI into a subdiscipline of astronomy that has the same, you know, just decades of work to figure out what it is we're looking for. Um, so, yeah, right now I would say we just need smart people to work on the problem. Adam, what would you do? Well, I'm a theorist, so um, what I would... You need a blackboard. <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a simulation guy. So, you know, I think like, you know, people like I was talking about, my, you know, my friend Woody Sullivan, those guys were pioneers, you know? I mean, really, it was, you know, I, when I was studying with Woody in the 1980s, he was just such a, you know, creative thinker. Um, about these problems, where other people haven't really gone there before. And I think now what I would want is I would want enough money to have an institute where I had a bunch of smart young people. And what I'm interested in is simulating this. There's now, there's all these different ways that we can simulate the interaction between planets and a civil and civilization. How do I know that? We're doing it with our climate models, right? That's what climate models are about. So to broaden this and try and ask this question, uh, you know, using the laws of physics. And then the panel took questions from the audience. First, someone asked about an assumption in Fermi's paradox that alien civilizations would find our planet attractive. He asked, why would they want a place with germs and predators and people instead of a nice clean asteroid where they could do whatever they like? If they are obviously multicellular, so they're flying their ships and they're coming into our solar system. The, the theory is that they would need oxygen. So actually, yes, we're the only world that would actually offer them what they would need if they wanted to get off their ships. Next, a question about SETI. How do they choose which stars and star systems to look at? There, um, there have been several SETI searches uh, with radio telescopes, and there's a couple going on now. Um, they will often target stars a lot like the sun, of similar maturity to the sun. The very nearest stars are good because the signal can be weaker and we'll still hear it. But the nearest stars to the sun are not its stellar siblings. They were not born in the same cloud. They're lots of different ages because the galaxy is pretty well mixed. So, but M2, I think it's important to point out that how important these M dwarfs have become. You know, the sun is not an ordinary star. Most stars are smaller than the sun, and so they're what's called M dwarfs. They're stars that are smaller, cooler, will last very long, um, and they're pretty cool, which means that their habitable zone is really close in. So, but that since those are the most common type of star, and since there's more of those nearby, that's really become the focus, uh, mm -hmm. or one a focus of both SETI and just all the entire exo astrobiology program yeah. is looking at uh, exoplanets around these M dwarfs. Next, when extraterrestrial life is most likely to be microbes or something else that's small and hard to find, wouldn't it be easy to miss? Are there any ideas for a definitive test protocol, for probes maybe, that would tell us whether or not a planet has life on it? Well, I mean, the, uh, the European Space Agency and the Russian Space Agency are sending um, the ExoMars rover to Mars in 2020. Um, that's going to be the first 
roving robot we're sending that's actually looking for signatures of life, not just a habitable environment where life could exist, but actual signatures. So we'll be looking for organic carbon compounds that might have a biological affinity um, and things like that. And obviously, there'll be a camera on a drill, and the drill's going to go two meters into the Martian surface. So it's going to cut through millions and millions of years of Martian history. So if anything is buried in there, then uh, we have got the tools and skills to be able to identify it. So that's pretty much we don't have a particular protocol as such, because we don't actually know what we might find. but. We do have a plan to find biological. What, what about the reevaluation of the Viking mission when it drilled? Mm -hmm. they, they poured some water on the soil, and they thought that they, they, there was no sign. But now they're rethinking. That well, now we know that the soil's got this uh, thing in it called perchlorate, um, and that can have a very negative effect. When because quite often to understand the samples, we have to heat them, and when we heat them, the perchlorate starts to react, and then that can theoretically destroy um, organic material. But Thankfully, the results that Curiosity rover has shown us is that there's carbon compounds, one's called chlorobenzene, that the perchlorate didn't destroy, might have actually reacted to help it. So we don't think it's actually as sterilizing the Martian surface as uh, we first realized, mm. but can't really go yeah. back and redo Viking. So uh, wow. to, um, I just to also yeah. answer, outside the solar system, um, there's a lot of work on, on what are called <laughs> biosignatures and what how we might be able to detect the presence of life on planets around other stars. Um, hopefully with the James Webb Space Telescope, but even more hopefully with its successors. And now another on the Fermi Paradox. Our first and best way of extending ourselves out of the solar system has been by means of long-range probes. So even if we haven't discovered life forms, wouldn't the odds be good that there are other advanced civilizations sending probes or robots out into the universe? And if so, why haven't we found any? Well, here's the interesting thing to think about. I had, um, I, I, I went to um, NASA GIST and I was talking to its director about, I wanted to talk about this astrobiology NASA of Guess Goddard Institute for Space okay. Studies up there, where they do all the climate change. Just make and, sure people know what we're talking about. Oh, thank you. No, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, I thought I was going to bring him this crazy idea about, you know, you can, climate change is really, you know, you know, every alien species goes through it. And he hit me with an idea that just, like, you know, outweirded me. Imagine 20 million years ago that tree sloths, giant tree sloths, developed a civilization, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, a complete civilization that looked like this. Um, would we know about it? If it lasted, say, let's say we wipe ourselves out in another thousand years, would, would, would we even know about it? And the answer is really no, because all the buildings are gone, and you know, there's really everything's been ground to dust. After 20 million years, there's not a lot left, and um, the fossil record is pretty, you know, it's not high resolution. So, other than like weird isotopic abundances, you wouldn't know it. So, with these von Neumann machines, you know, unless they came and stayed and kept reproducing here. You know, the, the whole problem with the, the, the Fermi paradox is just, is, it, there's a time problem too, because yeah. unless they're here, you know, right now, if you act, if it's, it was 20 million years ago, we're not going to know they were here. But they could so. be here and we not know it. That's true. That's true. Or they, and there is, there is know, a they're probably there. at the bottom of the ocean. Right. We, we, we have not explored the bottom. In space, of it. we find, because stuff will last in space if it's on a stable orbit for a long time, mm. right? The lunar probe, you know, the, the, that's going to yeah. be there for a long time. And there is already a planet that's um, completely inhabited by robots as well. <laughs> Mars. 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 <laughs> Perhaps they came to Earth, terraformed Earth, seeded it with life, died off, and here science we are. Fiction. I saw that right. movie. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> Brain Dead. You know, there's a new science fiction series coming out called Brain Dead, which is about not 
life forms that we think of, but they're little bugs that you know take over the brains of politicians. I'm not. I kid you not. <laughs> Start the CBS series coming up this summer. How can we tell the difference? Um, you know, but so how, could they be that kind of form where they're not they don't have the bodies right. that we think of, maybe or maybe those are little robots that they send out. To, maybe. Next. Do we know the average number of moons an exoplanet is likely to have? And if so, is there any correlation between number of moons and habitability? Have we actually officially found an exomoon yet? No, not no. yet. David no. Kipping here at Columbia is working hard on it. Can you have that kind of resolution on your data that you can find a moon of a planet that's It's so hard. Cool. It's really hard. It's really but hard. he's going to do it, I think. <laughs> Who's he? David Kipping at Columbia. Studies. We found rings. We found exo rings. Yes. That was up at Rochester. That was Eric Mamajak. Yeah. yeah, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, but the question was, I, I think the moon thing is amazing, right? Because when people have been talking about habitability and habitable zones for, mm -hmm. you know, 40 years, nobody thought about the moons, right? So it turns out that Jupiter and the, the gas giants have moons. Arthur C. Clarke did. James Cameron did. George Lucas. Yeah. Well, I was talking about astronomers. <laughs> what about astronomers? I, don't, I mean, I don't no remember. Sci no scientists. Never mind. Never mind. No scientists did for Hollywood. Hollywood. Hollywood, Hollywood was something. way ahead of us. Arthur C. Clarke, I mean, that's where they go in 2001. They go to the moons yeah. of Jupiter. Yeah. You know? yeah, but there wasn't, I mean, but the moons of Jupiter, that's where aliens had planted stuff. The idea, except that... They sent them to the moons of anyway, Jupiter. Well, yeah. We didn't have. It's not real. People do think about it, yes, but we yeah. haven't found any yet. Yeah, um, and that's what we think in our solar system that the light well, yeah, forms might be on the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. Right, that the habitable zone, it may turn out that, that the moons of giant planets may be the most interesting place, or maybe a very interesting place for life to form. Because yeah. a lot of them have subsurface oceans, deep subsurface oceans. Next, a question that brings us right back to basics. Is there a generally accepted definition of what life is? And also... Can you describe some possible examples of what non-carbon-based life might look like? Um, the general... Uh, What's the meaning of life, again? Good Lord. <laughs> um, so when we have to try and answer the question about what is life, um, NASA's got their answer, which is that it's some kind of body or organism that undergoes Darwinian evolution. Um, as an in-field astrobiologist, we ignore that because evolution's really, really long and none of us are going to get to Mars, sit down and stare at something <laughs> thinking it's life just to wait to see if it either changes or dies. It's just not going to happen. Um, we go through a number of criteria of what life may do. So we observe life eating, moving, excreting, responding to changes in its environment, all those kind of things. But there are absolutely every, there's an exception to every single one of them. So the answer is uh, we'll know it when we see it. We don't we don't have um, a set parameter of what. But it's got to have like be. substance to it. Protoplasm. No, there's something. been. Well, it's got a substance, a, but I mean, you know, this a rock. Fred Hoyle's black cloud. There's been all sorts of science fiction speculation on how to get around almost every day. Well, but yeah, you could you absolutely. could define fire as being alive, except for I the I I do describe <laughs> fire as being alive. It it ticks every single box except for the only one that's left, which is it has it doesn't have a soul or it doesn't have any like vital <laughs> presence, and that's actually it. Fire. But it, by it every satisfies all, it satisfies by every all definition. Yeah. I, I would say that the von Neumann machines, the, the, the robots yeah. that self-replicate and fill the galaxy are, you know, they're not organic. They're entirely mechanical, but why not? So yeah. we, so will we have a, a I'll put it euphemistically, a discussion if something is found and people don't yeah. agree whether it's life yeah. or not? Yeah. Absolutely. It'll yes. either be obvious 
or it's sure, possible sure. it won't be. No, even I mean, for so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. covered the whole thing, right? Yeah, pretty much. That's what, that's what I'm here for. I guess, um, you know, it's like pornography. You'll know. No, but I think mostly. It. I actually think mostly it'll be obvious. I think mostly it'll be obvious, right? Like you said, we'll know it when we see Steven's it. Stephen's perked up a little bit. Stephen's like, oh, God. <laughs> well, I think I think a lot of these terms that on the first glance appear scientific and very difficult to, to define. The, a, lot, a lot of the time the reason is because what actually concerns us is something else mm -hmm. and often something ethical. So for example, I think in the case of extraterrestrial life and identifying it as life, part of the reason that's going to be important is because we're going to be wondering about what kind of moral status it has. Mm -hmm. Is it entitled to certain kinds of respects? Because it's the kind of entity it is. That's a great point. Yeah. Right? And so that's going to mean <laughs> that you know, descriptive, purely descriptive characteristics or things that look purely descriptive like it can replicate and so mm. on are not really going to satisfy us. Mm. It's going to be very difficult if we see what we think is life, scoop it up in a test tube, bring it back to Earth, and then suddenly someone says, did you have the right to do that? Mm. You know, should you have encased that life form? Mm. Does this mean we can't go back? Exactly. Will you be stepping on it when you walk on the planet? Eating well, it? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they actually, the only thing that life, all life forms do at the moment we know is die. But... <laughs> That's a definition. Not, but it's a definition, but again, are you going to wait to watch something just in case it dies or not? No. So what about the, the carbon question that was asked as part of the two-parter? We don't have any other examples of life that's not based on carbon. Um, people are looking into silicon as another option, um, boron maybe, even arsenic, just as potential theoretical ideas, but we don't, we've not been able to make that. We don't do, have do we know why carbon was chosen on Earth? It works. It yeah, works. It's a bond. The chemical. It's yeah, very. It's very fecund yeah. in terms of its or promiscuous. You can they think of it as yeah. that way. Well. Don't fix it. It's, it's, it's able to make um, lots of double and single bonds with itself and other um, elements. And those bonds are extremely strong, but also very malleable. Um, there's a number of good reasons. It's the third most abundant element in the universe, and we're not going to use hydrogen and helium. So. It makes sense. Mm. Can't really do much with hydrogen and helium alone. Not that so. we know of, anyway. Right. <laughs> the next questioner asked, it seems like we're closer to making artificial life here on Earth than we are to discovering alien life out in the universe. Do you think it's more likely that anything we do discover out there will be artificial rather than biological? And could the reason they're not getting in touch is that they're waiting for other artificial life to talk to? That's a really interesting Maybe. point. Maybe. We're very dirty. But that's, that's, no, no, but that's, that's the other thing. Right we are. We're coming in bugs. They're horrible. Um, I, you know, I've, I've written, my first book was about, I was really interested in mythologies and how, you know, how science functions as a myth. And, you know, the interesting thing about mythologies is, as Joseph Campbell said, there's only a few in some sense that keep getting repeated. But the modern world has created one enduring myth, and that is what happens when our machines wake up. Right? Yeah. And um, you know that has been played out again yep. and again and again, and we've explored every kind of option of it because I think we have the sense that it's coming close. So that is exactly uh, um, Alistair Reynolds is a science fiction author who I really like, and he there was some recent series sort of really played that out exactly that that the you know the aliens were waiting until they you know until the aliens were machines and they were waiting until machines woke up and that's who they were going to talk to. Next. It seems like one of the big challenges here is not just there being another advanced life form out there, but that there's a life form that's reached our level of advancement at the same time as us. 
and not thousands of years ago or thousands of years in the future. How does that shift the odds? That, I think, again, if, it depends on the lifetime, as I said, but if the lifetime is reasonably short, 10,000 years or so, I think, I think it's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. We could work it. I haven't ever tried to work that, but it, that, I, I, that would be workable, outable. One of the um, answers we've always said to the phone paradox is just, just the timing's off. Yeah. It's, it's all about timing. Right. We're all off. Everyone's right. out of sync. Right. And you know, the idea that, like, there's, you know, it's popping up and disappearing all the time, and if you're just not synced, then... The next question was about the mathematical probabilities of creating life. There are a staggering number of possible combinations of the basic building blocks of life, things like proteins. And only a few of these combinations, as far as we know, actually end up in living things. Wouldn't that make the chances of life elsewhere actually much smaller than the panel is suggesting? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny. Somebody brought this up when the article came out, and I, I don't really buy that argument very much because, you know, first of all, you know, the, our argument is a pure frequentist kind of interpretation. You got so many sites, you know, how, uh, you know, uh, so many places for it to form. Because we've discovered that planets are common, there's just a lot of sites for it. But that configuration space argument is really, to me, a little bit more, you know, exactly because we don't know all the different. You know, nature. Every uh, my favorite quote is that everything that chemistry and physics allows will happen. Um, and so, you know, the idea that there's only this very narrow, narrow window that uh, these things can occur, you know, I, that, that's also an act of faith in some sense. Um, so, uh, and also, we, we have the argument, and it's hard to know what to do with it, but life on Earth appeared very quickly, right? I mean, within, you know, a few hundred million years after the planet became habitable, it was habited, inhabited. Mm -hmm. Right, and so now it's hard to know what to do with that via Bayesian arguments, but it's certainly it's a very interesting, compelling point that it didn't take for Earth very long to become inhabited after the conditions were right for it. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't find that argument very compelling. There's so many interesting things. I mean, there's we know of at least 70 amino acids that exist in space, right. but a human human life life on Earth only uses 22 of them. Why? We don't know. We even can see ones now that we think, well, that would actually work better for us, but life didn't choose that, you know, and what reason was that? And um, somebody really, I can't remember who it was who wrote it down, but they said that evolution has no goals and it has no plan. It, it only exists in the here and now, so whatever life needs at that exact moment, it will go in that direction. Um, so who knows in what direction it would go on um, in another world mm -hmm. again. Life will find a way. Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Jurassic Park. <laughs> the deep meaning. The philosopher Jeff Goldblum. That's what you all were talking about. <laughs> Thank you. Much simpler form. That's what I do. You know? <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Great the next question was about one of the most famous things to ever happen at SETI, the so-called wow signal. In August of 1977, one of their radio telescopes picked up a short, narrowband signal coming from somewhere in the constellation of Sagittarius that bore many of the hallmarks of the kind of signal that would come from an extraterrestrial civilization. They've tried numerous times over the last 30 years to find another similar signal from the same part of space and failed. And the questioner wanted to know, what does the panel think the odds are that the WOW signal is a real creation of extraterrestrial intelligence and not something else? Well, with one-offs like that, 
Um, the wow signal? So there was, a, uh, there was a particular SETI search uh, that was going on, and there was a very strong radio signal detected. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's called the wow signal is because it was so incredibly strong that on the readout, when the, the scientist was looking at it, took a pen and wrote wow with an exclamation point. <laughs> and so now it's called the wow signal. Um, and this is one of the difficulties of communication SETI, that unless it repeats or it's so complex and detailed and recorded that it's unambiguous, if all you hear is just one burst and then it's gone, you have to wonder, was it an anomaly? You know, was some cosmic ray hit your electronics and it burped or something? Or, you know, someone played a prank on you. <laughs> so it, you need either a really detailed, unambiguous signal the first time that says we're here, hi, or you need to see it again. And it has to repeat. So uh, I don't know what the wow signal was. Given how much more time various radio astronomers have looked with greater sensitivity since that happened, not seeing anything like that, it was probably not an alien signal, I would say. You need extraordinary evidence. Yeah. yeah. And finally, a questioner asked about something called METI, Messages to Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's the project of a Russian scientist who is intentionally broadcasting radio signals out to nearby stars as a kind of beacon to possible alien civilizations. Some famous scientists, including Stephen Hawking, think that this is a bad and maybe even dangerous idea, because if it does reach someone, they may be unfriendly, and so it wouldn't be a good idea to show them where we are. What does the panel think about all this? Steve? Well, I suppose this gives me my, a cheap way to answer the question that, every, that other people got to answer about, you know, if, you get, if somebody actually wrote you a check, what would you do with it? Um, I think in, in this arena, I think the science is very, very important. I definitely support things other people are talking about. But I also think serious thought about how we manage this emerging situation, um, ethically and politically, because I'm one of those people who thinks the political institutions and processes have to be justified ethically. Right? Um, I think that's a high-need area and probably one that doesn't cost anywhere near as much as the basic science. But it's going to be the thing we really care about the day after. And we'll end there. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Jennifer Costley. It presents a conversation called Are We Alone in the Universe, held at the Academy on Monday, June 13th, 2016. The moderator was Ira Flato of Science Friday, and the panelists were Dr. Adam Frank of the University of Rochester, Dr. Louisa Preston of the United Kingdom Space Agency, Dr. Jason Thomas Wright of Pennsylvania State University, and Stephen M. Gardner of the University of Washington. Find out more about the Physics of Everything series at www.nyas.org slash physicsofeverything. Both this podcast and the event it presented were made possible with the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media, at NYA Sciences on Twitter or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.